Our Bible reading this morning, our Bible reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And as Christy has already mentioned, this is the next installment of our I Was Just Wondering series. All the sermons in this series are based on questions that we've already received from the youth. And today's question is, how do I handle my sin? How do I keep from sin hardening me? And for that, we turn to these good, really important words of Paul. And we don't just turn to these words. I'm also going to be referring to Ephesians 4. So if you want to keep that close by, you may do that too. Here's what Paul says about us and our sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. But you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, you're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit which lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will surely die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. So today's question is, how do, I, how do I handle sin? How do I deal with sin? How do I keep sin from hardening me? And this is a really good question, a really important question. And really to ask this question is to ask, how do I find authentic, flourishing life? When you ask, how do I prevent, how do I keep away from sin? You are asking, how do I find the path of life? Because demonstrably, right? There are ways to live in this world that are self-destructive, that do no good. And there are ways to live in this world that lead to flourishing, both for yourself and for others. That path of flourishing is God's path. That path of destruction is the way of sin. So to ask this question is to look for life. And in order to then address this question from a scriptural perspective, um, we all have to understand this. We got to understand the two ways 
that the Bible talks about sin. Do you young people know the two different ways the Bible talks about sin? Do you less young people know the two different ways that the Bible talks about sin? Some of you do. We'll see. The first way that the Bible talks about sin is the way that it talks chiefly about it in Christie's passage that she read earlier from Ephesians 4. And that's to talk about sin as an individual act of wrongdoing. God says, do not lie. We, tell our, we lie to our parents about where we were on Friday night. We commit a sin. That is an individual act of wrongdoing. God says it's bad to gossip. At school, we participate in a conversation that tears somebody else down behind their back. That's a sin. We are committing an individual act of wrongdoing. And there's lots of places in the Bible that talk about sin in exactly this way and warn us against sin in this way. The Ten Commandments, for example. The Ten Commandments warn us against individual acts of wrongdoing. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, uh, do not covet. And that's also what Paul is warning us against in the passage Christie read earlier. In Ephesians 4, Paul is warning against all different kinds of ways we can do these individual acts. He does it in a general sense in verses 17 through 24, but if you were to keep reading in Ephesians, he warns against stealing, he warns against foul language, specific individual acts of wrongdoing. How do we fight against those sins? How do we prevent those? Well, I think the key is in verse 19 of Christie's passage when she says this about a person who uh, is struggling to fight against those individual acts. says that person has lost all sensitivity and given themselves over to sensuality. We have trouble fighting those individual acts of wrongdoing when we lose our sensitivity and give ourselves over to sensuality. How can we think about this? When I was thinking about this this week, I thought of leprosy, all right? Leprosy, the ancient disease that people called leprosy in the past and now tend to call Hansen's disease, all right? It's always been a terrible disease. It's always been a disease that makes pariahs out of people, makes them separate because it's terribly disfiguring, right? When you have leprosy or Hansen's disease, your, your hands can start to decay, so you lose your fingers. Your feet can start to decay, so you lose your toes. People with Hansen's disease can lose their noses. And for a long time, people didn't know why this happened, what, what the cause of leprosy was, but more recently, they figured it out. Leprosy happens and people's bodies decay because they lose their sense of pain. Lepers do not have the ability, the sensitivity, to feel pain. And that's what gets them in trouble. So if you're doing the dishes as a regular person, you're in these sudsy waters, you reach in your hand and you accidentally put your hand on a sharp knife that someone's put in the dish, in the, into, the, into the bowl, you immediately pull it away, right? Because you feel the pain and you, you medicate, you do whatever it's necessary to fix the cut. But a person with Hansen's disease puts their hands under the water and grips and just keeps on gripping and doesn't stop until he or she sees that their hand is terribly cut. And it's by doing these kinds of things over and over again that all their extremities start to decay. My reading this week, I learned that even Hansen's disease, leprosy, can make you go blind. And that's because every time you blink, what's happening is that there's a little pain sensor in your eyelid 
that realizes that your eye needs moisture, and so your body says, blink. And when you have Hansen's disease, you don't have that sensitivity, and so you don't blink. And so your eyes get dry, and you can go blind. Something similar can happen to us in the area of our moral life. We are all given uh, a kind of moral nervous system. You can call it your conscience. A moral nervous system which is meant to have a kind of sensitivity. And that moral nervous system keeps us from sin. So when I go into the electronics store and I see something really cool on the shelf that I'd really like to have but can't really afford, I don't pick it up and put it in my pocket and walk away. Why not? Well, my moral nervous system, my conscience says, no, you won't want to do that. You're going to feel guilty and it's not going to go well for you. Right? It works. It keeps me from sin. Now, we all have this moral nervous system. Right? It's given to us by God, but because we are sinful creatures and sin has come into the world, your moral nervous system isn't working at full function. It's not numb. You haven't lost all sensitivity, I don't think, but it's not working at full bore. And in this passage, Ephesians 4, Paul is suggesting that there are ways that you can get your moral nervous system to feel more sensitive. There are ways that you can get your moral nervous system to avoid sin and not give yourself over to sensuality. And Paul says there are two ways that we can do that in that passage. He suggests you can increase your moral nervous system sensitivity by education and by habit. Education, that's teaching our mind what's right and wrong. That's something scripture does all the time, right? We can educate our minds and become more sensitive by learning the places where God teaches about morals. Ten Commandments, you learn the Ten Commandments, you're learning moral sensitivity. You study Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He's teaching us right from wrong. We're learning moral sensitivity. You listen to Paul talk about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We're learning moral sensitivity. You study these things over and over again, and you learn to lean towards the things that God loves, compassion, kindness, and you lean away from things like rage and anger and deceit. This is really important. It's obvious, I know, I'm hardly the first minister to tell you that God's laws and rules are important. But I think sometimes as lifetime Christians, which many of you are, you kind of think, well, I figured this out. I know right from wrong. I know the Ten Commandments. I, I got a pretty good moral intuition. But when you get out there in the world, into real life situation, this can be very tricky. For example, say you go off to college, secular college, and some guy on your floor comes up to you and says, yeah, I'm, I'm a moral person. I have a strong moral compass. But I basically think that any consenting adult should be able to do whatever they want so long as they don't harm another person. If the adults are consenting and it does no harm to another person, that, that should, we should have the freedom to do those things. Do you as a Christian agree with that? And if you don't, if you feel like somehow, if, you're, if your moral nervous system is reacting to that statement, can you articulate why you don't agree with it? Or what about this? Someone in your acquaintance says, you know what? I think it's really important that we Christians stay, or that, well, not Christians, could be Christians, could be anybody. I think it's important that we cultivate our anger. 
We need to stay angry in this world. Because if you look at history, there's no change that's come to this world that hasn't happened without people getting a little bit angry and being forceful about things. You can't make an omelet if you don't break a few eggs. Do you agree with that? Is that right? Does your moral nervous system go off? And if it does, can you articulate why you don't agree with it? So one of the ways in which we improve our moral nervous system is by education. And there's a huge amount of moral instruction in Scripture, and there's a long tradition in the Christian believers and in Christian theology of reflection on moral issues that we can draw on for our education. But Paul, in his passage, doesn't just want us to morally educate our brains, doesn't just want education, he wants to morally educate our bodies. And so Paul suggests that our moral education and sensitivity also includes habits. And he does this when he talks about putting off and putting on. That's something you hear all through Paul, that rhythm of putting off some things and putting on other things. Verses 22 and 24, put off your old way of life, put on your new way of life. Colossians 3, take off the sinful way of life, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness. Paul says this, he's suggesting a kind of habitual rhythm where you practice morality. So a morally sensitive life has some putting off habits. Like you try to control how much you look at your phone. Did you know that there are apps that can control that? Actually, you young people probably all know that. Your parents probably don't. There are apps that you can put on your phone that limit your TikTok time or your Instagram time or whatever program you want time to 15 minutes, and when it's done, it shuts it down. That could be a putting off habit if you're struggling in that area. Putting off habit is voluntarily putting a filter on your computer to make sure you never look at porn. Putting off habit is saying to your friends, when they ask you to go out on Friday night to this place, saying no to them because you've gone out with them in the past and you know how that goes and you don't like the person you become when you're with those people in that place. Being a morally sensitive Christian also, though, has putting on habits. On Thursday night, you always make a double meal, enough to feed your household, but then half of it you put in a freezer so you have something to share with a person in need. On Monday and Wednesday nights, you always spend an hour reading. You don't watch TV, you don't do other things. You always spend an hour reading something good, something that will feed your soul. You decide to volunteer at the shelter every Monday, every third Monday of the month. Why do you do that? Because, well, you drive by those panhandlers all the time and you know you're not supposed to give them money and you don't give them money, but you've got to do something. Combine the moral education, training your mind, with the practice and the habits, training your body, and you have a, the way that Paul suggests to increase your moral sensitivity and fight against the first kind of sin, those individual acts of wrongdoing. But that program that I just laid out, while it works really well against individual acts of wrongdoing, is not very effective against the second way that the Bible talks about sin. 
This way of talking about sin is the most important and the most crucial to understand, although it is the least understood among most Christians. If I were to ask you what sin is, if I were to ask you in the narthex before the church, most of you, your answer would have been something like a sin is an individual act of wrongdoing. But this stronger sense of sin is more important. And it's the sense that Paul talks about in Romans 8. When Paul talks about sin in Romans 8, if you were listening, he's not talking about individual acts of wrongdoing. Sin in Romans 8 is a force. It is an evil power that can overshadow you and menace you and take you captive. Verse 2. The Holy Spirit sets you free from the law of sin and death. Sin and death are things that can take you captive and you need to be set free from them. They enslave you. Verse 8, sin is a realm that can govern you. And when you are in that realm, you are hostile to God and you can't even please God no matter what you do. This is the second and deeper sense of sin, a force that can take you captive. It's the sense that Paul means when he talks about being in the flesh. When you are in the flesh, that's Paul talking about that captivity. When he says in the flesh, he doesn't mean that you have a body. What he means is that your sinful nature has taken control of your life and is holding you and you can't get out. This second sense of sin cannot be defeated by good habits. It cannot be defeated by you studying the law. You could study the Ten Commandments all day long and it would be powerless against this second sense of sin. That's what Paul says. For what the law was powerless to do. If you're captive to sin, it does not matter how much you study the law and learn in your mind right from wrong. You will not do it because you are held captive. The only thing that can set you free is the Holy Spirit and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Lord. His power going down into a place in you which is deeper than your will and deeper in your mind and setting you free. Can you hear how different this sense of sin is? This deeper sense of sin is all through Scripture. Paul talks about sin in this way all the time. It shows up as early as Genesis 4. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? So Cain... Right? He's feeling miserable, he's feeling bitter because his brother's sacrifice was received and his wasn't. And before he commits the murder, God comes to him and warns him. And you remember what God says to him? He says to Cain, Cain, watch out. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Sin isn't just an individual act, it's an animal, it's a beast that wants to take control of you. I spent a lot of time this week reading and listening to testimonies of recovering porn addicts this week. Now, why did I do that? It was really interesting, really disturbing. Why did I do that? Because you get both senses of both kinds of sin when you read and hear their stories. Because all their stories kind of find, follow a similar pattern. All these kids get into porn really, really young. Uh, eight years old, nine years old. There was a girl who told her story who got, was exposed to porn and started her cycle at six years old, okay? And then they all follow the same pattern, right? They, they look at it occasionally, right? Once in a while. But then they start to look at it more. And then they start to look at stuff that is more graphic. 
and they get deeper and deeper, and all of a sudden they're in this place where they can't get out, where it has taken control of them. And in these testimonies, when you listen to how they describe it, they start to talk about it in a different way. It's not just about looking at porn anymore. It's like something has a hold of them, like they are in the clutches of a beast. One young woman who goes to a local college here said that she'd lie in her bed and she could feel it was like this addiction was clawing at her, her words. Another young man said that he felt like every day he was trying to fight a dragon or a beast and he kept losing. So you hear how both senses of sin are in those stories? Right at the beginning, when they first start looking at it, individual acts of wrongdoing. But by the time they're in the addiction, it's something much darker and much harder than that. Now I know this kind of sin, this possessing kind of sin sounds terrible and it's depressing. And if you're a parent, this kind of talk scares you. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. When Paul talks about this kind of sin, when Paul talks about this power of sin, is he negative? Is he scared? The opposite. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For us, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit which gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yes, sin is a possessing power, but if you are in Christ Jesus and if the Holy Spirit is in you, that power cannot have you because Christ has broken it and your sins are washed away and death's hold is gone. Can you see, can you sense how fighting this second kind of sin is a completely different endeavor and requires something different from you? It's not about habits when you fight this kind of sin. It's not about things that you do. It's about worship. You fight the first kind of sin with habits and learning. You fight the second kind of sin by opening up your arms and worshiping God and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do what I cannot do. And if you read the conclusions of those porn stories I talked about earlier, that's exactly how they talk about being freed from their addiction. At some point at the bottom, Jesus does something. The Holy Spirit does something. Something changes, and they don't do it. God does it for them. And then on top of that liberation, they build habits. And they build moral learning. And they start this journey of being free. So what I want to say to you young people when you ask the question, how do I fight against sin? I want to say the most important thing that you can have in your fight against sin is the knowledge that you are a sinner saved by the patient and almighty grace of God. That you are not your own, but you belong body and soul and life and death to your Savior Jesus Christ who has fully paid for all your sins and set you free from the tyrannical power of the devil. That is the baseline of who you are in Jesus Christ. That is the baseline of who you are as a baptized child. In your life, you are all going to have moments when sin feels like it has a hold of you and when you are in its grip. But when you feel that, that is not the deep reality of who you are. You belong to Jesus. And as Paul says at the end of Romans 8 in those transcendent words, neither life nor death neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Amen. Lord, um, we know the limits of our powers. Uh, you know that every day we are trying to fight against sin. We're trying to find the path of life in all our relationships and all that we do. We want the path of life. We do not want the path of destruction. But we also know that our, our abilities to discern that path are limited. So Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit that sets us free, keep your Holy Spirit strong and bright in our minds, in our hearts, and in our heads, so that we may always walk in your paths and live as your children. Amen.